0: Today on Golden Girls Sports, we set, serve, and spike three of Florida's favorite games.
1: Marcus Allen, Mike
2: Tyson, extra innings, the tight end decoys. So it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson, Bobby, oh, Tampa Bay Bucks, and they're off. The pig
0: takes the lead. The chicken... Like the beep, beep, beep of the Tom Tom premiered on February 10th, 1990, the 17th episode of the Golden Girls' fifth season. It was written by Philip Jason Lasker and directed by Terry Hughes. Blanche sees her doctor for an irregular heartbeat and hears that scary word, pacemaker. She struggles to share her feelings with her friends, and Sophia doesn't help by interrupting
1: the doctor. Oh, you know how they get over the slightest little thing. And? Uh, And
2: Dr. Worrywart wants me to check into the hospital for more tests. Dorothy, have you been fooling around with my Tip O'Neill calendar? Uh,
1: No, Ma, I haven't.
2: Come on. I'm missing March. It's the month where he's playing volleyball with Jesse Helms.
1: Ma, not now. Blanche's doctor wants her to go back to the hospital for more tests. For Blanche,
0: the idea of having a pacemaker installed means the loss of youth and, potentially, her ability to participate in her favorite activity. Worse, she's dating a hip new guy named Simon, and she has to break the news to him that they won't be going to bed anytime soon. Eventually, Blanche realizes that having a pacemaker doesn't mean not having a life, and she and Simon are back at it by the end of the episode. The title, like the beep-beep-beep of the Tom-Tom, is a reference to the first lyric in Cole Porter's Night and Day, which mentions the beat, beat, beat of the Tom Tom. It's also another episode written by Philip Jason Lasker, with an unruly and bizarre title, like the Cavallo curse makes a loud is a wedding present, and the president is coming, the president is coming. We talked about this phenomenon a couple of episodes ago, and B. Arthur probably hated this title too. The idea for the episode came to Lasker after his wife had received a pacemaker, And he felt the show had the type of audience that would understand all of the emotions a procedure like that can put a person through. Quote, What was great about the Golden Girls was that because of the women's ages, it was one of the few places where you could incorporate that kind of story. A big segment of our audience had probably dealt with something like pacemaker surgery or was afraid to deal with it. So I was proud of the reassurance we were able to deliver. End quote. Playing Blanche's boyfriend Simon in the episode was Robert Culp, who was and still is probably best known for I Spy, the mid-60s action show he starred in alongside Bill Cosby. But Culp didn't just act on the show about a couple of American agents who traveled the world on secret missions under the guise of an amateur tennis pro and his coach. He also wrote seven episodes and directed one of them as well. In fact, a script he wrote on spec in the early 60s about an American James Bond equivalent found its way into the hands of producer Sheldon Leonard, who was working on I Spy at the time, and Leonard had Culp rework the teleplay to act as the series' pilot episode. Culp was nominated in 1965 for an Emmy for his writing on I Spy, to go along with his three nominations for lead actor on the series. He lost all three times to Cosby. After I Spy ended, Culp became a prolific cameo presence on TV shows or a lead in B-list and TV movies, usually playing quick-witted tough guys or all-American types. His biggest movie roles were in Paul Mazursky's 1969 comedy Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and in the JFK biopic PT-109. He also directed himself and Cosby in the 1972 feature Hickey and Boggs. If you came of age in the 80s, you may remember Culp Best as gruff FBI agent Bill Maxwell, who was saddled with keeping William Kat's greatest American hero from hurting himself or anyone else in his uncontrollable alien super suit. Culp also wrote and directed two episodes of that show. Later in his life, Culp appeared on several episodes of Everybody Loves Raymond as Deborah's father, Warren, and as Dr. Wallace Breen in the video game Half-Life 2. Robert Culp's last role was in 2010, in the movie The Assignment. That year, he collapsed outside of a park near his home in Los Angeles and died of a heart attack. He was 79 years old. It's not clear if Sophia ever found her missing calendar page, but that one-line gag was no mere non-sequitur. Tip O'Neill and Jesse Helms represented polar opposites not just on the political spectrum, but on the societal one as well. Thomas P. Tip O'Neill got his nickname from his boyhood friends, who were referencing an old baseball player from the St. Louis Browns. Chances are the latter Tip is and will be the most memorable one for the rest of time. Throughout his years coming up through Boston political circles, O'Neill was the prototypical northern liberal Democrat, focused on helping minorities, the poor, the working class, and everyone else through the establishment of government programs. But O'Neill wasn't just some altruistic do-gooder, he was also one of the most prominent power brokers in Washington for decades, and his stubborn political leanings brought him into conflict with two presidents, one of whom was in his own party. As Speaker of the House from 1977 to 1987, O'Neill was the voice of the Democrats, and when Man of the People Jimmy Carter was in office, O'Neill and the Democratic President clashed over the role of local politicians as representatives of the voting public. When Republican Ronald Reagan beat Carter in 1980, O'Neill became the most consistent thorn in his side, at least on this continent. While disagreeing with Reagan at every turn, O'Neill's strategy was not to directly oppose the president's plans, even if it meant his precious social programs might be in danger. O'Neill figured that the Republican agenda would prove unpopular with the people the more Reagan and Congress tried to push it. And in a lot of cases, he was right and Reagan was forced to alter some policies throughout his second term. When he passed away in 1994 at the age of 81, Tip O'Neill was celebrated by leaders on both sides of the aisle as a politician's politician, a true Beltway insider who never tired of playing the game no matter what was at stake. That might not sound like a compliment depending on your own view of our government, where distrust in elected officials has pretty much never been more intense, but it was meant as the highest praise possible for a force and personality that might not be seen again in Washington. Jesse Helms, on the other hand, could be called a conservative Republican, but that would be ignoring the giant white elephant in the room. Helms was a racist. There's no other way to put it. The senator from North Carolina switched parties in the 1960s when Democrats began pushing for civil rights policies. And that was just the beginning. Helms swung his racism like a club bludgeoning the country with it throughout his 30 years in the Senate. The examples are innumerable and easy to find. Helms publicly supported South African apartheid. He consistently tried to suppress the rights of black voters. He taunted black senators by whistling Civil War songs in their presence. Helms was unapologetic and unrepentant about his views on race. The sad thing is, it made him a popular figure in his home state and with a large part of the country one famous episode illustrates everything Jesse Helms was about. While trailing his Democratic challenger in their 1983 Senate campaign by about 20 points, Helms decided the time was right to filibuster against a proposed bill to dedicate a holiday to slain civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Opposition to the filibuster was quick and vocal, even from some Republicans who were voting in favor of the holiday. Helms ended up getting the vote postponed for a few weeks, enough time for him to lobby the FBI to release wiretap files and other dirt it had on King. While Helms argued that King was an agent for communism, he also viciously sparred with prominent Democrats like Ted Kennedy and Daniel Patrick Moynihan with ever-increasing nastiness. But, like a true supervillain, it was all just misdirection for a bigger caper. A Martin Luther King holiday wasn't Helms' real target. While all this was going on, keeping his name in the papers and drawing white voters to his fiery rhetoric, Helms' deficit in his Senate race was shrinking to single digits. In November of 1983, Martin Luther King got a federal holiday, and Jesse Helms won re-election in a stunning come-from-behind victory. When he died in 2008 at the age of 86, many papers and editorials simply called Helms a quote, conservative icon or something like that. Unlike the plot it's thrown at Tip O'Neill, those labels were meant as a way to shy away from discussing Helms' inveterate hate and regressive, prejudiced, bigoted thinking. Both Tip O'Neill and Jesse Helms were creatures of the system. One did it for the benefit of others, and one did it out of pure discrimination. I doubt the two ever actually played volleyball together, but I know who I'd like to see get spiked right in the face. Let's change the subject. The sport of volleyball was founded at the YMCA, which we discussed at length in episode 15. William G. Morgan was the physical director of the Y in Auburn, Maine, and heard complaints from businessmen that stopped in during lunch breaks and after work. They wanted a sport that was as strenuous as basketball, which had been created a few years earlier, but one that was less aggressive and involved less body contact. So Morgan got to thinking, and eventually borrowing. He took a tennis net and raised it to the average male height of six feet, six inches. He took a basketball, the concept of nine innings from baseball, and the ability to play with your hands from handball. Teams consisted of an unlimited number of players on either side. He called his sport Mintonet, but when showing it off at a YMCA training conference a year later in Springfield, Massachusetts, a professor named Dr. Alfred Halsted offered the name volleyball and it just stuck. The game still had some kinks to work out though. For one thing, basketballs were too hard and heavy. So around 1900, Morgan contacted local sporting goods manufacturer, A.G. Spaulding, who came up with a lighter ball with a rubber bladder and soft leather cover specifically for volleying. It didn't take long for the accessible game to spread, first to a few colleges, then to Canada, and then around the world by 1916. One big adopter was the Philippines, where the popular set-spike method of scoring was pioneered. When the NCAA published the rules of volleyball, the sport was adopted even more rapidly around schools across the country. In 1947, the Fédération Internationale de Volleyball, or FIVB, was founded in Paris and is still the game's governing body, organizing competitions on courts, grass, or sand. Volleyball made its Olympics debut at the 1964 Games in Tokyo, which we talked all about in episode 17. 20 years later, the US won its first medals in the sport, with the men's team taking gold and women's team taking silver in the 1984 games in Los Angeles. The rules of volleyball have changed a bunch over its first century and continue to evolve every few years. Thanks to the rally point system, which was instituted in 1999, the team that didn't serve can score points, and it now takes 25 points and a margin of two or more to win a set, down from 30 points as of just a few years ago. A match consists of five sets, and if it gets to a fifth, that fifth set ends at 15 points. The rules for beach volleyball are different still. Volleyball first hit the beach in 1928, but the Association of American Volleyball Professionals wasn't formed until 1983. The AVP tour has had its ups and downs and disputes with the FIVB, but it's stronger now than ever and features many of the country's best players. Beach volleyball was added to the Olympics in 1996, and thanks in large part to superstars Misty May Trainer and Carrie Walsh Jennings, the USA is pretty damn good at it. The pair won golds in 2004, 2008, and 2012, and after May Trainer retired, Walsh Jennings won bronze with partner April Ross in 2016. Volleyball is a staple everywhere from summer camps and high schools to televised competitions. A long-running joke about the sport is that it's a favorite at nudist colonies, but is that really true? You bet your bare ass it is, and the topic actually came up on the Golden Girls once. Valentine's Day is a season four wraparound episode credited to four writers, Kathy Spear, Terry Grossman, Barry Finaro, and Mort Nathan. It's one of the show's better vignette episodes and contains four shorts in which the girls reminisce about romantic holidays gone wrong. In the first, Sophia tells the story of a cross-country trip many years earlier in which she, Sal, and her father got stranded in Chicago during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In the second, Dorothy and Blanche remember the time they stupidly let Rose plan a weekend vacation with typical Rose results. The three end up in a clothing-optional resort, were outdoor sports of the order of the day.
1: Thanks a lot, Rose. Oh, this is a great Valentine's weekend. Stuck in a hotel at a nudist camp for 10 hours.
2: I'm sorry, Dorothy. It's all my fault. I misunderstood
1: the brochure. Fun in the buff at a mountain retreat. Hike, swim, and play volleyball while the sun beats down on your fanny. <laughs> Paul David Horowitz I mean how can they get away with this misrepresentation I don't understand how people can run around showing their naked bodies to total strangers it's disgusting it's sickening it's
2: terrible Yoo-hoo. Blanche
1: would you please get away from that window for two seconds come here a minute I want you to see this guy playing volleyball Blanche will you stop acting like a teenager you have seen naked men before what is the big deal Woo. <laughs> Is that a legal serve?
0: (laughs) The girls eventually give in to the natives and decide to attend that night's dinner in the buff, only to find out from a really rude maitre d' that guests are expected to dress for evening meals. The third vignette has Blanche celebrating an anniversary for her and her late husband George and once again confronting her feelings on homosexuality. And the fourth is an all-time classic, in which the girls buy condoms at a convenience store and end up hilariously drawing the attention of every shopper in the place. Finally, back in the present day, Sophia waits until all the girls leave before she goes out on her own Valentine's Day date with the actual Julio Iglesias. Other guest stars in Valentine's Day include prolific character actor Peter Elbling as the nudist hotel desk clerk, longtime comic and gag writer Pat McCormick as the store cashier, and Bill Dana stepping away from Uncle Angelo to play his own father alongside Estelle Getty and Sid Melton as the younger Sophia and Salvador. So, where to begin? Let's talk real quick about David Horowitz, a consumer advocate that hosted the syndicated show Fight Back for an incredible 16 seasons. The New York-born Horowitz was based out of California, and every week he would challenge corporate claims about their merchandise by running tests, sometimes with live audiences, meant to prove how true their advertising was. He'd also do investigative journalism and confront companies after consumer complaints, and do it all with a sense of entertainment and humor. He always signed off by encouraging viewers to fight back and never let anyone rip them off. And if he read your letter on the air, Horowitz would send you a Fight Back t-shirt and a copy of the catchy theme song on vinyl record. The show ran from 1976 to 1992, and became something of a shared pop culture experience. Horowitz appeared as himself on ALF, Silver Spoons, The Simpsons, and even the Super Mario Bros. Super Show. His name also popped up a couple of times on the Golden Girls. In the Season 5 episode Rose Fights Back, written by Mark Sotkin, she gets a job with fictional consumer advocate Enrique Moss after Charlie's pension is lost. Horowitz served as a consultant on that episode, and Moss would be Rose's boss for the next two seasons, making her try out all manner of ridiculous products. He was played by actor Chick Venera, who also played boxer Kid Pepe and Fiddler on the Ropes, and whose career we discussed extensively in our very first episode. Horowitz is still a consumer reporter and an occasional guest on news channels. He's taken some heat lately for accepting money from companies in order to advocate against legislation that would impact them, although he claims he's still fighting back on behalf of causes he believes in. Maybe he pays the companies back in t-shirts and records. Naturism, or nudism, can trace its origins back to at least the late 18th century. But the practice of going au naturel definitely dates back even further. Nudist establishments, be they clubs, camps, colonies, resorts, beaches, or whatever, are still found all over the world. And chances are, volleyball is probably going on. At least one nudist colony owner has called volleyball the nudist's national sport. During the 1930s, spectators could pay a quarter to watch a nudist convention at San Diego's Balboa Park, where the main attractions included a play about sun worshippers and volleyball games. You can still watch a reenactment of that fair today, although the modern attendees are actors wearing flesh-colored bodysuits. Why was volleyball so popular among nudists? Who knows. Maybe it was the fun of physical exertion without the tough body contact that led William Morgan to create the sport in the first place. Maybe it was because men and women could play it together. Maybe it was a more fun way to get suntanned all over. Certainly easier than playing ice hockey in the buff. A different brand of volleyball was mentioned in Season three's Strange Bedfellows, written by Christopher Lloyd. Blanche has been photographed near the home of a politician who's running for office, and the papers are already calling it a scandal. Sophia doesn't trust candidate Gil Kessler, but it has nothing to do with his politics.
2: Look at this picture of Kessler,
1: Dorothy. There's a secret behind those eyes. Trust my hunch on this one. I'm never wrong. Oh, come on, Ma. Remember your hunch about your nephew Angelo? You said one day he'd be Pope. Dorothy, you gotta pay attention. I said one day he'd sell dope.
2: (laughs) What do you think he went to Attica for, the volleyball program?
0: We talked about Strange Bedfellows way back in episode 9. Turns out Kessler is just using Blanche as a way to spice up his boring public persona. Sophia was right about him having a secret, although we're not sure if that was a lie too. Playing volleyball in prison is a thing. Not only do inmates play it amongst themselves, but Xavier University's men's volleyball team visits Kentucky's Luther Luckett Correctional Complex annually to play against them as well. A team called Kenya Prisons is one of the best volleyball teams in all of Africa, but the group isn't connected to any correctional system. Volleyball is actually the second most popular sport in the world, with 800 million players across the globe. The most popular is, of course, football or soccer, which is treated as a religion everywhere. Except in the United States, where it still mainly exists on the fringes of mass sports fan acceptance. In Triple Play, a season 5 episode written by Gail Parent that aired in February of 1990, Sophia has been receiving extra Social Security checks and pocketing the cash. To get her to return the money, Dorothy uses Sophia's own immigration story as a way to remind her of what she taught Dorothy growing
1: up about this country and about soccer. Ma, you told me how much America meant to you, how, how wonderful America was, how, how nice it is to, to be in a country that doesn't care about soccer. <laughs> that money belongs to America. Ma, you have America's money and you have to give it back. To be sure, Soccer's popularity
0: in this country has risen in the last few decades, thanks to factors like the founding of Major League Soccer, World Cup and Olympic glory by the U.S. women's national team, and the always popular series of FIFA video games. A 2018 study by the Nielsen Corporation shows that the percentage of people from the U.S. who describe themselves as interested or very interested in soccer is up to 32%, four points higher than a similar poll taken four years ago. But we still have a long way to go. As of right now, the United Arab Emirates leads those standings with an 80% interest level in the beautiful game. Thailand, Chile, and Portugal are in the high 70s, Mexico and Spain are in the lower 70s, and traditional powers like Italy, Germany, and Brazil are in the 60s. Over half the respondents from the UK say they're interested in football. So what was true in 1990 is still mostly true today. Americans just don't care that much about soccer. But there's one place in this country where footballers are always welcome, Blanche Devereaux's bedroom. In Blanche's Little Girl, a Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman written episode from season three, the ladies are awaiting the arrival of her estranged daughter, Rebecca, and her dickhead boyfriend, Jeremy. When Becky gets there, everyone is surprised to see she's a lot heavier than they expected, which Sophia is, as usual, not particularly sensitive to.
1: Does it bother you that I gain weight?
2: Oh, I'm just so glad to have you back again. Listen, let's go and I'll show you where you'll be staying so you can unpack your thing. Now I understand why she's sleeping in Blanche's bed. We know it can support the weight of an average female and two Venezuela soccer players.
0: (laughs) Venezuela has a less than stellar record in soccer. It's the only member of the South American Football Confederation to never have qualified for a World Cup. They finished 4th in the 2011 Copa America Tournament, their highest finish there since a 5th place result in 1967. Their traditional burgundy uniforms have earned them the nickname Vino Tinto, or red wine. At least that's what Wikipedia says. I wonder if their play doesn't send fans to their red wine. In Venezuela, soccer has to compete with baseball for players. In other Latin countries, another sport draws a lot of eyeballs, and betting. Highlight was born in Spain, but is a staple of Florida sports. The state has more arenas, or frontons, than any other, so naturally it came up on the Golden Girls a couple of times. The first time was in the show's ninth ever episode, Blanche and the Younger Man, written by James Berg and Stan Zimmerman. Rose's mother Alma comes to Miami to visit, and is treated by her daughter like she's made out of ancient glass. Rose is so protective of her mother that when Sophia takes her out to show her the sights, Rose is a nervous wreck.
2: Oh, Sophia, thank goodness you're home. Where's Mother? She was feeling lucky, so she wanted to try her hand at High But why didn't you go with her? I'm too short to play (laughs) line. Sophia, you left my mother alone roaming through a strange city? Who's roaming? She has a bus map, $400, and a Spanish-English dictionary. (laughs)
0: Rose and Alma have a falling out over her treatment, but in the end, Rose learns to let go and see her mother as an adult, and not a child. Rose's mother Alma Lindstrom was played by Jeanette Nolan, who had an incredibly long career in show business across radio, TV, and movies dating back to the 1930s. She and her actor husband John McIntyre would do radio plays together in New York, then retreat back to their log cabin in Montana to get away from the noise of the city. Nolan, who studied at the same Pasadena Playhouse that helped produce Rue McClanahan, made her film debut in a big way, playing Lady Macbeth opposite Orson Welles in his production of Shakespeare's Tragedy. She also starred in Fritz Lang's The Big Heat, and was one of three uncredited actors who provided the voice for the deceased Norma Bates in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Nolan has over 300 credits to her name, many in western shows like The Virginian, Gunsmoke, and that show's little-remembered spin-off, Dirty Sally, in which she played the title character. She also appeared in two films by Western auteur John Ford, including the man who shot Liberty Valance. When she wasn't out on the range, Nolan would bring her talents and knack for different accents to a million shows, from The Twilight Zone to My Three Sons to Charlie's Angels to Night Court and God knows what else. She was nominated for four Emmys in her career. One was for lead actress in Dirty Sally, and one was for Supporting Actress in a guest role on an episode of I Spy in 1965. That's a very short description of the career of one of the most prolific and accomplished character actresses of all time. Her final role was in Robert Redford's 1998 film The Horse Whisperer, which was released a month before she died at the age of 86. Highlight originated from the Basque region of Spain, an area that stretches from the Atlantic coastline and into the Pyrenees Mountains, which border France. The game started out akin to handball, and was played against church buildings on Sundays only. It was called Pelota, after the hard rubber ball used to play it, and is known as Pelota Vasca in Spain. But when it came to Cuba in 1900, it became Hailai, which translates from Basque into Merry festival." As the game got faster throughout the 19th century, players started wearing leather gloves to protect their hands. Small wooden bats were used for a while, but they eventually gave way to a curved basket called a sesta that is strapped to each player's arm. Like everything involving highlight, those have a fascinating backstory as well, and this sentence comes straight from Encyclopedia Britannica because it's perfect. Quote, Each cesta is custom-made of Pyrenees mountain reeds over a light, ribbed frame of Spanish chestnut. A leather glove sewn to the outside holds the player's hand securely. End quote. It takes 14 hours to make one cesta, and players repair and care for them with great frequency. Every cesta is tied to a player's hand using a wrap called a Cinta and they're all right-handed only. So if you're a lefty, stick to something else. The Pelota is about the size of a baseball, but is very heavy with a hand-wound rubber core covered in thick goatskin, The balls are so hard that granite walls are necessary to withstand their impact, and helmets have been required since 1967 due to the number of injuries and deaths they've caused. Pilotas can travel upwards of 170 miles an hour, making highlight one of the fastest and most dangerous sports in the world. What started as an outdoor game eventually moved inside to arenas called frontons, Matches are played on three-walled courts called conchas and can be over 170 feet long, 40 feet wide, and 40 feet high. The game spread from Spain to all over the globe thanks to sailors in the 1800s. After reaching Mexico, Cuba, and the Philippines, the United States first saw highlight at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. That exhibition led to a mini-boon in this country that didn't last very long. Florida is the unquestioned American capital of highlight. Casino Miami is the world's largest fronton. It seats over 5,000 people and was once called the Yankee Stadium of highlight. Frontons are also located in Tampa, West Palm Beach, Daytona Beach, and Orlando. Also, bizarrely, Hartford, Connecticut. The basics of the game are simple, but still complicated and different depending on where it's played. The goal is to catch the ball and fling it back at the wall in one fluid motion. If another player juggles the ball, or throws it out of bounds, or doesn't catch it on one bounce, or simply fails to return it, they lose a point. In North America, games are usually played in round-robin-style tournaments between multiple teams. Players wear jerseys with their team or post number on the front, and their individual number on the back. Just like in the arcades, the team that keeps winning stays on the court until they lose. Drop a point, and your team goes to the back of the line. After a team reaches either 7 or 9 points, they win. In the case of ties, the top teams can compete in a playoff and will finish either in the win, place, or show slots. That's where the betting comes in. Gambling on highlight is very popular, especially with old dudes in Florida, and it actually had an effect on other sports betting as well. The idea of picking a Quinella, or the first two finishers in order, and the Perfecta, all three finishers in order, started in highlight before coming to the world of horse racing and dog racing, all of which are among Sofia Petrillo's favorite sports. There was another highlight mentioned on the show, which of course involves Blanche and her always active bedroom. In season two's Take Him, He's Mine, written again by Spear and Grossman, Dorothy beseeches Blanche to do the impossible, go out on a date with Stan. He's lost his business and he needs a shoulder to cry on, but Dorothy has a date that night. When she returns to the house, Blanche is the one who needs the shoulder.
2: Dorothy's born, This was the most bizarre evening
1: I've ever spent with a man.
2: Including the time with a highlight team from Nicaragua?
1: She said one man. That was the most bizarre evening she ever spent with a team.
0: It turns out Blanche had a good time with a man she has absolutely no sexual interest in and decides to see Stan again just for fun. That causes Dorothy to twist herself into knots trying to make sense of this betrayal, but ultimately Blanche tells Stan they can't hang out anymore, making everyone much happier. Maybe Blanche looked up those two highlight players. Like a lot of people, most of my memories of volleyball come from middle school and high school gym classes. It's funny that the sport was essentially invented to have less physical contact between players, because I'm not sure I know anyone that hasn't been hit in the face with the volleyball at least once in their lives. I also remember an old gym teacher telling us horror stories about earrings getting caught in the net and causing injuries, so if you are pierced, you may want to try to stay towards the back of the court. I had absolutely no idea that volleyball was the second most popular sport in the world, but I guess that makes sense. Like soccer, the equipment is minimal and you can play with as few as two players or as many as you have. Also, being able to play on the beach is always a plus and something few sports can actually offer. Another thing I did in middle school and high school was read a lot of Mad Magazine, which is where I learned pretty much everything I know about politics. Not that that's a lot. People like Tip O'Neill, Jesse Helms, Spiro Agnew, Gary Hart, and of course every president would get ripped in those pages by the 50-year-old men writing a comedy magazine for 13-year-old boys. And it wasn't just U.S. politicians either. Every time I hear the name Muammar Gaddafi, I immediately think of a gag from Mad comparing the ever-changing spelling of his last name with Daffy Duck. Gasser Arafat, who Sophia said she looked like after menopause, was another frequent target. It's always a trip hearing those names on the Golden Girls because they take me back to that era. I'm not sure the world is better off now than it was back then, but as an adult, those same names take on a whole new context. And sometimes, they aren't funny. Next time on the penultimate episode of Golden Girls Sports, we tie up just a few loose ends that I caused. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saraceni. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at GoldenGirlsSP. Thanks for
3: listening.